The History Channel original podcast. He's the unheroic hero of our greatest national epic, the American Civil War. Grant's major fault early in the war is overconfidence. He thinks, if anything happens, I'm going to start it, and it comes back to bite him. Battle of Shiloh's the bloodiest battle in American history up to that time. The nation is shocked when the casualty reports come out. From the History Channel, this is Making Grant. I'm Andre DeShields. This season, the divisive commander of the Union Army and the 18th President of the United States, Ulysses S. Grant. April 6, 1862. Grant's troops are staged at Pittsburgh Landing. He has successfully forced the Confederate Army to retreat from Kentucky, delivering a much-needed victory to President Lincoln. Now, he's joined by the man who will become his most trusted commander, William Tecumseh Sherman. Their plan? To capture Corinth, a major rail center near the Tennessee border that would give the Union Army control over the entire region. Neither is prepared for what is to come. The scene is set for what would become this bloodbath of Shiloh. If the Confederate forces cannot regain the upper hand, they will most likely lose control of the Mississippi River. Their commander, General Albert Sidney Johnston, believes that the war itself may be at stake. And so, says historian Timothy B. Smith, Johnston decides he must stage a counterattack against Grant and the Union Army. Johnston knows that Grant's army is tucked up into Pittsburgh Landing along the Tennessee River in between two major creeks. The Confederate plan is to trap the Union Army in this cul-de-sac and to destroy the Union Army with one massive attack. And so Johnston gambles, and he says, we must roll the iron dice of battle. We must conquer or perish. The Union camp at Pittsburgh Landing is near a small wooden chapel, Shiloh Church. The name means place of peace. Grant's forces await reinforcements from the command of General Don Carlos Buell. Grant is not at Shiloh. Grant is actually having breakfast nine miles north in his quarters at the Cherry Mansion. As Grant's troops wait, setting their position and starting preparations, they are surprised. Some 40,000 Confederate soldiers swarm into their camp. Johnston's troops batter Grant's army, pressing them back in an attempt to pin them against the river. At the time, this is the largest attack in American history. Military historian Harry Laver describes the chaos Grant encounters when he arrives back at the Union camp. When Grant finally got to Pittsburgh Landing, officers didn't know where their men were, their men didn't know where the units were. Grant makes his way around the battlefield, not caught up in the chaos, thinking, where are my commanders? What's their assessment of the fight and how it's going and what can I do to assist them? For professor in military history Gregory Hospidor, Grant's reaction is typical of him. Grant immediately begins to assess the situation. It is almost as if battle clarified his mind and he could see the central thing he needed to do to remain calm 
to collect soldiers who have straggled back into the area and begin to plug this defensive line. If Pittsburgh Landing falls, Grant knows his army is gone. If the Confederate plan is to trap the Union Army in this cul-de-sac along the Tennessee River, then Grant will utilize this trap perfectly to fight a delaying action to hold out until Don Carlos Buell's reinforcements arrive. He has a whole division under Lew Wallace much nearer, and as he goes around and he talks to the different division commanders throughout the day, he will tell them, hey, Lew Wallace is on the way, should be here any moment now. General David Petraeus says Grant's natural qualities, his cool under fire, his gift for military analysis, give him tremendous advantage in battle. There's confusion and incoherence on a battlefield, but Grant had enormous control of his emotions. There was physical courage, this quiet competence, and he was a great horseman in a day and age when that was a very important skill to have on the battlefield. Grant on the battlefield does not appear to let the demons of failure enter. He's already been there. He's a fighter. That's one of the things he brought to any army he was in command of, was that sense of endurance, the sense that this isn't going to be easy. I'm not looking to win it in a day. Grant needs a way to hold his ground and wait for his reinforcement to arrive. Grant knew that he may need that division of Lew Wallace's to survive this fight, but there's great confusion with Wallace's division on how they should get to the battlefield, and Wallace does not show up. As the Confederates move forward, the fighting became more and more constricted. It becomes a very chaotic, brutal fight, and Grant recognizes that at points of chaos, when everything is going wrong, you just simply have to do something to regain control. Grant realized he needed to buy time, or his army was about to be overwhelmed. Facing a desperate enemy, Grant writes, Contrary to all my experience up to that time, we were on the defense. The endeavor of the enemy was simply to hurl their men against ours with disregard of losses on their own side. Historian Timothy B. Smith describes Grant's deliberate approach. Grant is already thinking to fall back gradually, holding successive lines of defense, basically trading space for time, to hold out until our reinforcements arrive. Deliberate, but relentless. Grant is not going to give up. He's going to stick and fight. And so orders went out to all his division commanders to hold their positions, as Grant put it, at all hazards. Grant's tenacity pays off. Buell's troops begin to arrive and strengthen the Union lines. Grant has been falling back throughout the day, and the Confederate commander, Albert Sidney Johnston, wades into the battle himself because he's got to conquer or perish. And all of a sudden, Johnston is hit in the back of the leg, and he bleeds to death. He doesn't conquer. He perishes. Johnston's second-in-command, Pierre-Gustave Toutain Beauregard, took over. And Beauregard believed they had the Union Army right where they wanted him. But Grant used the terrain extraordinarily well. His men constructed this defensive line along this deep ravine. The Confederates have to go down into this ravine. They make one charge up out of the ravine into this whirlwind of Union artillery and musket fire. 
they are driven back by this intense fire. Orders start to echo down the Confederate line that we're done, stop the attack. Beauregard stopped the fight. We'll finish this up in the morning. Grant, sitting on horseback watching as the Confederates fell back into the ravine, said, not beaten yet by a damn sight. Grant, with this dogged determination, he thinks that nobody can beat him. That evening, Sherman says to Grant, Well, Sam, we've had the devil's own day, haven't we? Grant replies, Lick him tomorrow, though. For historian Alan Gelzo, the battle at Shiloh marks the beginning of the famous partnership between Grant and Sherman. At the Battle of Shiloh, Sherman and Grant, while they had never been what you would call good friends, they will first come into their own as this wonderful duo who will turn out to be one of the great working partnerships of the war. By the time darkness falls, yes, it's been a bad day for the Union Army, but they haven't been pushed off Pittsburgh Landing. They're still holding on to that strip of ground. And what's more, across the river, Don Carlos Buell is finally starting to arrive, and there are federal gunboats out on the river whose shells are keeping the Confederates at bay in the darkness. General Petraeus describes that haunting night. Grant is almost defeated on the first day, almost driven back into the river. And this is where you see Grant at his most indomitable, in a sense, most determined, most imperturbable. He is under a tree. He can hear the cries of the wounded. Grant knew his army was disorganized. They had spent a full day carrying out this brutal fight. But he also suspected the Confederates were in the same condition. And so he believed whoever seizes the initiative in the morning will indeed be the victor. So orders went out to all his division commanders at first light, begin the attack. Wherever you are with whoever you have, begin the attack. Colonel Doug Dowd says that it is Grant's instincts that set him apart. Find another commander at Shiloh that's going to attack on day two. Everybody else is thinking, oh my goodness, there's no way. I think that Grant looks at this equation differently than everyone else. Grant, who's failed and had to look at the dark side of how to be resilient, I think it gives him an extra source of strength that most other commanders don't have the ability to tap into. He had the gift of being able to take in a landscape, a map, and know almost at once what needed to be defended, what couldn't be defended. And what Grant had seen at Shiloh was that the Confederates had exhausted their last energy just in getting as far as they had. Grant had seen that if in the night Buell's troops could be ferried over and Grant's army could be rallied and somehow reorganized and put back into position for a counterattack the next morning, then the Confederate army itself would collapse. Grant was determined to stay and fight. Everything he's learned came into play in making that decision. That's the point where Grant becomes Grant. The endeavor of the enemy on the first day was simply to hurl their men against ours, first at one point, then at another, sometimes at several points at once. This they did with daring and energy until at night the rebel troops were worn out. Our effort during the same time was to be prepared to resist assaults wherever made. The object of the Confederates on the second day was to get away with as much of their army and material as possible. Ours then was to drive them from our front. This day, everything is favorable for the Union side. We have now become the attacking party.
In the course of the battle, Grant himself narrowly escapes disaster. He later wrote, There did not appear to be an enemy to our right, until suddenly a battery with musketry opened upon us from the edge of the wood. The shells and balls whistled about our ears very fast for about a minute. In the sudden start we made, Major Hawkins lost his hat. When we arrived at a perfectly safe position, we halted to take on account of damages. McPherson's horse was panting as he ready to drop. On examination, it was found that a ball had struck him forward on the flank and had gone entirely through. In a few minutes, the poor beast dropped dead. A ball had struck the metal scabbard of my sword, just below the hilt, and broken it nearly off. There were three of us. One had lost a horse killed, one I had in one of sword scabbard. All were thankful that it was no worse. It was another brutal day of fighting over much of the same ground. But by two in the afternoon, Confederate Commander Beauregard ordered a withdrawal back to Corinth. The battle is over, and it is, technically speaking, a victory for the Union Army. But it's a victory which has been won at terrible prices. Huge casualties. 25,000 killed, wounded, and missing. The armies in the Revolution and the War of 1812 are smaller than the casualty count in Shiloh. Grant writes, I saw an open field on the second day so covered with the dead that it would have been possible to walk across the clear and stepping on dead bodies without a foot touching the ground. Shiloh is incredibly important as the place where our country woke up to the reality of what it had signed up for. It was as if from the battlefield, a metaphorical postcard went home to America and it said with a picture of the dead, this is what you've signed up for. It forced us to wake up. It forced us to grow up. It forced us to realize that this was going to be much harder than anybody had imagined. Battle of Shiloh is the bloodiest battle in American history up to that time. The nation is shocked when the casualty reports come out. Both sides reel at the devastation at Shiloh. Reporters circulate rumors that Grant was drunk during the fight. Some credit Buell's forces for the victory. The White House is flooded with calls to remove Grant. Historian Terry Winchell says Shiloh casts a long shadow over Grant's reputation. Grant doesn't come out of Shiloh looking very good. You know, he was unconditional surrender Grant at Fort Donaldson, became a hero. And now all of a sudden people are asking, what happened? The casualty list and the fact that Grant was surprised on the first day overshadow the fact of the victory. Rumors start reaching Washington that explain that surprise as Grant must be on the bottle once again. But the president answered those critical of Grant by saying, I can't spare this man. He fights. After the bloodbath of Shiloh, Grant's superior, Henry W. Halleck, removes Grant from his army command with no duties, no real authority, nothing. Grant, powerless and relegated to the sidelines, is disconsolate. Dear Julia, Grant writes to his wife, I am no longer boss. General Halleck is here. I hope the papers will let me alone in future. 
If the papers only knew how little ambition I have outside of putting down this rebellion and getting back once more to live quietly and unobtrusively with my family. He has lost his command. The papers accuse him of being drunk at the Battle of Shiloh. He considers resigning. Grant tells Sherman that if he's going to sit the war out, he might as well do that at home. But Sherman says no. Grant needs to take action. And that action should be capturing the strategic city of Vicksburg, Mississippi. The city of Vicksburg is on the east bank of the Mississippi River. And it is nestled among bluffs that tower 300 feet above a horseshoe-shaped bend of the Mississippi. The line of defense consisted of nine major forts, connected by a continuous line of trenches and rifle pits, stretched for more than eight miles, and then 172 big guns. Taking Vicksburg will break the supply lines to the Confederate forces in the east by cutting off access to the Mississippi River. But, according to Princeton University historian Alan Gelzo, the task seems nearly impossible. Back east, Abraham Lincoln was at that moment about to rid himself of his general-in-chief, George McClellan, and the replacement that he pitches upon is Henry Wager Halleck. He brings Halleck east. And so finally, the clouds part, and Halleck gives Grant the authority to command as Grant sees fit. And the interesting thing is it takes Grant all of one day to start organizing an offensive against Vicksburg. I would call Grant's Vicksburg campaign his masterpiece. It's the centerpiece of the war, but Vicksburg was incredibly difficult to get at. At this point in time, it's a rainy season in Mississippi. The war has suspended peaceful pursuits in the South, writes Grant, and in consequence, the levees were neglected and broken in many places, and the whole country was covered with water. Troops could scarcely find dry ground on which to pitch their tents. Malarial fevers broke out among the men. North of Vicksburg was a great, gigantic swamp. He needs to put his troops on open ground, but the only open ground is below Vicksburg on the eastern side of the river. Well, how are you going to get troops below Vicksburg? You just can't send transports and gunboats because they would have to run the batteries at Vicksburg to get past the defenses. So, as historian Terry Wenchell explains, Grant attempts an ambitious feat of military engineering. If he can't get his troops past Vicksburg by way of the river, he thinks, maybe he can dig his own waterway to bypass them. He decides to build a canal, planning to divert water from the Mississippi to keep the way open and maybe even divert the river itself. It enthralls Abraham Lincoln, who almost on a daily basis would send Grant a telegraph asking, how's work on the canal coming along? And Grant would send back these very rosy reports. But Sherman was far more candid when he said, the canal don't amount to much. And by late March, even Grant would realize that this canal is a bust. Once Grant accepts that his canal is not an option, he concludes that there is no other way than to send his boats directly down the Mississippi. 
The Union gunboats are ironclad, but their tops are wood and vulnerable to attack. They'll be sailing right past the enemy. Sherman cautions him against it. Sherman says, I want this on paper, then I'm against this. But Grant has full confidence in his plan. He's determined to take the risk. In preparation, all the gunboats are painted black. Bales of cotton, bales of hay are stacked around the engines to muffle the sounds, as well as out on the gun decks to absorb incoming rounds of Confederate ammunition. Around 11 o'clock at night, the gunboats and transport vessels in single file line will slowly drift with the current. Grant writes, the enemy were evidently expecting our fleet for they were ready to light up the river by means of bonfires on the east side and by firing houses on the point of land opposite the city on the Louisiana side. The sight was magnificent, but terrible. Now, on the night of April the 16th, Admiral David Porter pays very close attention as to where the shot and shell are hitting his vessels. They are hitting his smokestacks, but almost none are getting any lower to where the vital parts of your boats are situated. And he realizes the Confederates can't fire against the near bank of the Mississippi. And so Porter orders all his gunboats to hug the shoreline. So close did they come that almost all the Confederate shots are now flying harmlessly overhead. Due to the success of the passage on the night of April the 16th, Grant will transport 24,000 soldiers across the mighty river. Grant's decision to run those batteries, the determination, the grit, this is utterly part of his makeup, and the, the loss of ships running Vicksburg batteries is won. Grant's gambit is a success. All the labors, hardships, and exposures were for the accomplishment of this one object. I was on dry ground on the same side of the river with the enemy. Meanwhile, all is not well in the Eastern theater of the war. Historian Barton A. Myers. At one point, the Union Army is losing something like 200 men a day to desertion in early 1863. So the army is literally leaving the field. And then in May of 1863, you get Lee's greatest victory of the war in Chancellorsville. Doug Dowds. This is Robert E. Lee's high point, outnumbered two to one. This is the whole idea of one Confederate could fight three Union soldiers. Here he proves it. The Union public is starting to feel like this is unwinnable. And so there is a ticking clock politically, and everyone is watching to see if Grant will be successful. Grant surprises everyone with his next move. Once on the Vicksburg side of the river, most people would have expected Grant to march north toward Vicksburg. Military historian Gary Edelman. And yet, he doesn't do anything like that. First of all, you don't attack where the enemy expects you to attack from the south. Second of all, in command of the roughly 30,000 troops at Vicksburg is John C. Pemberton. And Pemberton's fortifications are wildly strong. Terry Winchell again. Rather than take the direct road to Vicksburg, Grant opts to move in a northeasterly direction, cut Pemberton's line of supply and communication, isolate his opponent in Vicksburg, and then move in for the kill. For the next 17 days, Grant's army will push deep into the interior of the state of Mississippi. At the same time, in Mississippi's capital city of Jackson, another Confederate force is organizing under the command of Joseph Johnston. Suddenly, Grant is facing two Confederate armies while deep in enemy territory. 
It's a very risky position. He turns his back on Pemberton's army, nearly the same size of his own. A commander always needs to know himself, know the environment, know the enemy. He knows John Pemberton. He knows he's not aggressive, and he thinks, if I strike quickly, I can defeat them in piecemeal before they join, and therefore it's an advantage to have this central position. And that's exactly what he does. He accepts risk by leaving Pemberton in his rear, and he's going to go ahead and turn and attack Jackson. Grant is exposing himself to two threats at once. Pemberton is expecting him. He knows Grant's army is south of Vicksburg. Grant believes the troops in Jackson are too strong to risk turning his back on them. Grant also recognizes how essential it is for an army to have access to supplies. He has to defeat the Confederate reinforcements before turning his attention back to Vicksburg. And on May the 14th, Grant's armies will drive Confederate forces out of Jackson and destroy Pemberton's line of supply and communication. With Johnson's forces scattered to the winds, Grant will turn west toward Vicksburg. Pemberton all of a sudden realizes Grant has turned west, and this is when Pemberton decides, I gotta stop and give battle. The numbers are largely equal, somewhere less than 30,000 on each side. An army on the move is an army to be destroyed, and therefore he's gonna continue to push Pemberton's army, and this is gonna drive the Confederates back into the defenses of Vicksburg. Grant's strength is being able to see all the elements in play and strategize several moves ahead. General David Petraeus. Grant could feel a battlefield. He could see it in his mind, not just in space, because keep in mind it's not just who's on the left, the right, the center, but in time, because it's sequencing the different activities. And that is really just short of genius. Grant writes, Champion Hill, where Pemberton had chosen to receive us, was well selected. It is one of the highest points and commanded all the ground. As long as we could hold our position, the enemy was limited in supplies of food, men, and ammunition. Ulysses S. Grant has now gone down the Mississippi River. He's in the midst of the Vicksburg campaign. In 17 days, Grant's army marched 200 miles and won five battles. And now we are talking about a siege. With momentum on their side, the Union Army finds a new source of support. Georgetown professor Marsha Chapman explains how enslaved men now began to flock to the Union forces to join the fight. Throughout the Civil War, African Americans start to flee to Union Army encampments in hopes of finding some mechanism for freedom. Essentially what these African Americans do is they appeal to the Union Army and say, make use of me in this conflict. In Grant's own personal life, the fact that he married into a family that was dependent on the system of slavery, his decision to grant freedom to a slave, the fact that during his time in Missouri, he's tilling the soil with enslaved people, I think illustrates how Grant's life is actually an object lesson in the ways that a person has to grapple with their position on equality. Lincoln has recently signed the Emancipation Proclamation and, with it, called on black Americans to defend the country. The United States colored troops are mostly given supply and guard jobs. If they are in combat, they are sent into dangerous situations with inadequate arms. 
Grant welcomes these men into his ranks and allows them a chance to fight. And so, beginning in 1863, you have your first appearance of black soldiers in blue uniforms. Their first engagement, in fact, occurs during the Vicksburg campaign. And it is at this moment that two things become very clear. That they have not been given the best training, nor have they been given the best weaponry to protect themselves. Almost half of the black troops die guarding Milliken's Bend outside Vicksburg. But Grant is struck by their bravery and resolve. This was the first important engagement of the war in which collared troops were under fire. These men were very raw, having all been enlisted since the beginning of the siege. But they were most gallant, and I doubt not they will make good troops. By the end of the Civil War, almost 200,000 African Americans will fight on the Union side. Meanwhile, the siege of Vicksburg grinds on. It will last some 47 days. Professor Gregory Hospodor describes how this kind of warfare wears down the enemy in a brutal battle of attrition. The primary strategy of any siege is isolating the people you are besieging inside, causing them to use up both their military resources, but especially their food, to force them to capitulate. By the end of June 1863, the soldiers of the Confederate Army of Vicksburg are subsisting on a handful of peas and rice per day. Even their water is rationed to one cup per day and about 2,000 civilians are trapped within the city, living underground in man-made caves to escape the constant bombardment of Union shelling. Elizabeth Samet, the editor of Grant's memoir, says that, determined as he is to win, Grant is nonetheless sympathetic to their plight. Grant knows full well the suffering of the civilians in Vicksburg. He doesn't relish any of it, but I think he does believe, without breaking the will of the Southern people, that this war is not going to come to an end. Historian Gary Edelman describes the dire living conditions as the weeks wear on. These civilians at Vicksburg, who weeks earlier were able to get all the food they needed, were clearly starving. And they started eating anything that moved, rats included. And by early July, it was clear that the Confederates were near the end of their rope. In late June, Grant orders his men to dig tunnels and set explosives under the Confederate encampment. They set off an enormous explosion, then spend almost a day in hand-to-hand combat in the 12-foot-deep crater left by the blast. Grant's troops find no way to advance, and the siege continues. On July 3rd, two persons were seen coming towards our lines bearing a white flag. It was a glorious sight. Grant writes, Pemberton at first proposes that Grant let his troops go with their property, and by property, he means slaves. Up to this point, Grant's reputation is unconditional surrender Grant, and yet here he paroles the men that are there, and it shows what flexibility of mind he had. I think he makes the calculus of, what if we send these 30,000 scarecrows back to their towns? What are they going to tell them? We just got whipped. 
Grant agrees to let the Confederate troops return home, but without their so-called property. The enemy had been suffering, particularly towards the last. I myself saw our men taking bread from their haversacks, giving it to the enemy they had so recently been engaged in starving out. Accept it with avidity and with thanks. Vicksburg surrenders and the Mississippi is open. And as Lincoln says, the father of waters flows again, unvexed to the sea. And the great thing is that the news comes to him the same weekend as the news of the victory at Gettysburg. My dear General, President Lincoln writes to Grant, I do not remember that you and I ever met personally. I write this now as a grateful acknowledgement for the almost inestimable service you have done the country. Elizabeth Semmett. Grant and Lincoln first meet as correspondents, and their correspondence is quite wonderful. They are both men of the West, and I think they share a certain philosophy and perhaps a certain attitude, and I think it really set the terms for their future relationship. This victory was a culmination of a very long campaign, full of trial and error, full of Grant figuring out how do I capture what seemed an impregnable fort. Grant considers the victory at Vicksburg his military masterpiece. Later in life, he makes the comment that there were many things he would have done differently except for the Vicksburg campaign. With this battle, Grant reaffirms Lincoln's belief in him and, says Harry Labor, it is rewarded. With the success at Vicksburg, there's no question that Grant is one of the top generals in the war. Lincoln said, he'll be my man and I'll be his the rest of the war. And so Grant is given command of the entire Western theater. Grant writes, the art of war is simple enough. Find out where your enemy is. Get at him as soon as you can. Strike at him as hard as you can and as often as you can. And keep moving on. Grant will live by this creed as he rises to the highest ranks of the Union Army. By the summer of 1863, the Union Army moved into Georgia, but the Confederates lashed back and won a huge victory. The Union Army retreated back into Chattanooga. The Confederates followed, occupying the heights around the city. It's at this point that Lincoln decides that he must call Grant in for the situation. Lincoln had gone through about every other senior general in the Union Army at this point in time. And finally, Lincoln finds his general, a general who will actually fight but all of Grant's success had been in the Western Theater, and everybody would argue, you're not out in the Western Theater anymore. You're fighting Robert E. Lee. That's next time on Making Grant. Making Grant is a podcast from the History Channel, produced by Best Case Studios. For the History Channel, Jesse Katz... Mary Donahue and Jennifer Wagman are the executive producers. McKamey Lynn, supervising producer. The executive producer for Best Case Studios is Adam Pincus. Suzanne Myers is our producer. Ashley Warren is the associate producer. Galen Mullins edited and mixed this episode with assistance by Max Michael Miller. 
Grant was originally produced for television by Radical Media for the History Channel. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.